0: Given virtually any circumstance, you can have two people that face the exact same circumstance but react in an entirely different way. It's really an amazing phenomenon when you start to think about it. And when you think about how two people can face the exact same circumstance, the exact same situation, the exact same hardship, or the exact same decision and respond in completely different ways, it really comes down to a matter of belief. That the difference in response is indicative of a difference in belief, I love history, I love to read history, talk a lot about history in our house, you know, we're kind of, you know, I'm the nerd family or something, or at least Gracie and I are, Megan and they're all cool, but Gracie and I, we love history, and we kind of nerd out on it sometimes, and probably our favorite thing to talk about, or our favorite, uh, our, the thing that we're most interested in is the Holocaust, I just find the Holocaust to be totally just riveting and just to think about what people endured and how they got to that place and what they went through. And, and I particularly love to hear, hear tales by people that, that lived through the concentration camps and went through the extermination camps and survived it and how they described their experiences. And even with the experience of the Holocaust, you can see how two people can face an almost identical circumstance and make an entirely different, come to an entirely different conclusion. Ellie Wiesel was 15 years old when he, his dad, his mom, and his little sister all were sent off to Auschwitz. Uh, Upon their arrival, within a matter of of hours, the same day they arrived, both his mom and his little sister were taken to the gas chamber and then burned in the human incinerator. He and his dad were sentenced to hard labor, and they began to work and work every day. for, For years at a time, they would work until eventually they were totally emaciated, shells of who they once were, doubting everything they had ever known and doubting everything that they had ever believed. And, and Wiesel, he, he says that there gets to a place that it's just before his liberation. Of course, he doesn't know that at the time, but it's just before his liberation. And his dad has gotten to such a weakened state that he falls down and, and, and Ellie is there and his, his body is so emaciated and so exhausted that his dad is on the ground and he's being trampled to death by all of the other all the other uh, inmates, and he's not able to even intervene, not able to even step in. He says it's a guilt that he's lived with all of his life. But he goes back to the original night in his uh, his autobiography called Night, and he said that first night as they stood there and he looked across the darkened sky, there was a, a large chimney, and coming out of that large chimney was a plume of smoke that was billowing against the dark sky and what he came to realize is that that chimney was in fact the chimney to the incinerator where they were burning the bodies of the people that he knew the people that he loved and he wrote these words he said never shall I forget that night, the first night in the camp which has turned my life into one long night seven times cursed and seven times sealed never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and made my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget these things, even if I am condemned to live as long as God Himself. Never. Corey Timboom was a Dutch Reformed Christian who lived a similar experience. Her faith was fervent, and she was middle-aged at the time. She had an elderly father and another middle-aged sister, and they all lived in one house. And her father was just a, a stalwart in the community, a stalwart of, of Christian faith and of confidence in God. And he began to be compelled by the Lord that, that he had to do something. He couldn't sit and watch as, as customers of his, friends of his, Jewish friends were, were being hauled off in carts and, and murdered as they were. And so what they decided to do is they decided they would take in their home and they would build a secret room and they would hide they would hide uh, Jews in those, that secret room to be able to protect them. And they would go through what we, almost like a fire drill of what you would do at work or at school. And within 60 seconds, they could ring a bell and they would flip all the mattresses so that the soldiers would come in. They wouldn't fill a warm bed. They would clean all the dishes and everybody could be in the hiding place within 60 seconds. Eventually, in 1944, they were betrayed by a neighbor who came and pretended that he needed help. He pretended like he needed a place to hide his wife. And instead, he was being paid by the Gestapo to go and to rat, to rat out all of the potential hiding places that were there. And they were sent off to, to Buchenwald to a, a, a concentration camp for political prisoners. While he was there, her, her father, who was an elderly man, was immediately executed because he was un. Worthy of the right. His sister was not in good health, and they began to work, but they were, by God's kindness, able to smuggle a Bible in. It was something that was paraphernalia. It would have been unthinkable to have a Bible, but they were able to get a Bible in. And they were in a particular barrack, and she said it was the kindness of God because it was so eaten up with mice, I mean with lice, that the guards wouldn't even come in the room. And so there they are in a lice-eaten room, and they're holding worship services with a smuggled Bible. Eventually, her sister dies because she, her body just can't withstand it anymore, and a week before every single person her age is executed, Corey is released on a clerical error. She wrote these words, you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Corey would go on to open a home for mentally ill children and to minister to others over the course of her life. She would actually begin to make friends with, uh, with Ruth and Billy Graham and she went on to inspire thousands of people to greater faithfulness in Christ. And so here you have, you have two people that both went through similar experiences, both which experienced the, the hellacious conditions of the Holocaust. And one's reaction was to delete God and the other's reaction was to draw near to God. And you know, the same is for us. The same is for us. All of us are facing different versions of the same life. All of us have circumstances that are hard to face. All of us have experiences that are difficult to deal with. All of us have experienced sins that are hard to come back from. All of us have experienced those. That whether we're diagnosed with cancer, or we miscarry, or a spouse betrays us, or we, God calls us to the frontier of missions, it's in front of us as to what we're going to do and how we're going to respond. And however it is that we respond is indicative of what it is that we believe. And that's what we see here in Israel, isn't it? As Israel stands on the edge of the promised land, you have 12 spies that have went, and you have 10 that have come back, and they've said, we can't go. There's giants. The Nephilim lived there, man. Like, what, what hope do we have? You want us to go in there against them? Not gonna happen. But you have two other spies, Joshua and Caleb. They saw the same giants. They saw the same fertile ground. They saw the same grapes. They saw the same flowing with milk and honey. They saw the same opposition. They saw the same hardship. They saw the same stuff. And do you know what their response is? We've gotta go. What are we waiting on? We should have already been going. Let's pack our bags. Let's head on in. So it's in these crucible moments that teach us the difference between a convenient faith and a convictional faith. It's these moments that teach us what our hearts truly believe. So what I want us to do is I want us to go back to where we started last week, and I want us to to finish up how we can know if we have a convenient faith or a convictional faith. Last week we looked at what it would look like if we have a convenient faith, Today we're going to look at what it looks like if we have a convictional faith. The first thing that I want you to see this morning is that a convictional faith counts on God's gifts. A convictional faith counts on God's gifts. It's hard to imagine. You ever been in a situation where you're with somebody else and they're talking and you're trying to suppress, like keep your blood pressure low? You ever had a moment like that? Like, I, You know it happens for me? It happens for me when I eat when I eat lunch with somebody that's hard on a waitress. Y'all with me on that? Somebody starts getting on a waitress, and, and you already know that the only people that do this are the bad tippers, right? Like, they're the only people that do this. They start getting on the waitress, and I mean, just, and you just want to crawl under the table, and you can, I can feel my face turning red. You know what I'm saying? I can feel my ears getting hot. I think that's how I imagine Joshua and Caleb as they listen to the other 10 spies talking. They've seen it all. They have the same promises, the same experiences, the same circumstances. And yet, here they are, listening to everybody else say why they shouldn't go. And so Caleb, Caleb speaks up, and he, and, he, and he shares that you know there's two perspectives facing Israel. Two, two perspectives on looking at the promised land. You either see the promised land for what you're getting, or you see the promised land for what you're facing. And in your life, the circumstances that you're facing... You're either looking at your, the circumstances as what you're getting, how God's going to come through for you, how God's going to provide for you, how God's going to deliver you, or you're going to look at them as, as what you're facing. And so what, what Caleb begins to do is he begins to talk about the goodness of the gift that God has given to them. Notice what he begins by saying. He, sa- he goes on and he says, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. Now this is interesting. Alright, so if we were to read this in Hebrew, what this would actually say is this would say the land which we pass through to spite out is an exceedingly, exceedingly good land. It's actually written two times. That it would be an exceedingly, exceedingly good land. That that there that, that one exceedingly is not enough, that it is excessively fertile, it is excessively plentiful, it is excessively wonderful, it is excessively bountiful. That, that this is an exceedingly, exceedingly good land. And so he says, if the Lord delights in us, if the Lord delights in his people, if the Lord loves his people, if the Lord, if the Lord is, is seasoning his people, then he wants to give them good things. He wants to give them a good life. He will bring us, I kind of overwrote that, and then give it to us. What, what is he going to give to us? He's going to give us a land that flows with milk and honey. You see what he's doing here? He's, t- he's highlighting how good the gift is that God is giving to them, isn't he? Now, why is he doing that? Why is Caleb going to such lengths to talk about how good the promised land is? The goodness of the promised land was indicative of the goodness of God. Do you know what the purpose of gift, the gifts of God are? God's gifts are glimpses of his character. It is an exceedingly, exceedingly good land because it comes from an exceedingly, exceedingly good God. That God is excessively wonderful, that God is excessively generous, that God is excessively merciful and excessively gracious, that it is a land that flows with milk and honey as they had seen with their own eyes, and it proved that God was trustworthy and dependable. In other words, Caleb is not one of these pie-in-the-sky optimists. I don't even like hanging around you people, okay? If, if everything that you see automatically just turns to, you know, Skittles and flowers and unicorns and rainbows, those people are just irritating, aren't they? Like, this like it, it comes across as superficial, you know? But that's not what's going on with Caleb. Caleb is not looking at the situation and thinking, well, this is going to be a cinch. <laughs> Big deal. There's a few giants. What are y'all sweating? We'll step on their heads, you know? That's not, that's not Caleb. Caleb is realistic. Caleb is a realist who sees the whole picture, but he sees a broader picture than what the other ten spies see. The other ten spies are zeroing in on the enemy. They're, They're zeroing in on the opposition. They're zeroing in on the hardship. But he is zooming out to see the hardship in light of the goodness of God, to see the hardship in light of how generous God has been, how gracious God has been, how God has provided for them every step of the way. See, Caleb understood something that we need to understand that what God has said is more certain than what you have seen. What God has said is more certain than what your eyes have beheld. Yeah, you look around at your life and it's hard. You look at your health and it's hard. You look at your circumstances and they're hard. You look at our country and maybe it's hard. You're, it's, it's, easily to be, it's easy to be overcome by all of it. But our eyes are short-sighted. Our eyes don't take in the full perspective. Our eyes don't see it all because God has said. That's the essence of a convictional faith. A convictional faith is believing what others can't can't yet see because God has said it. Because God has said it. You know, the inclination of my heart and the inclination of your heart is the same as that of Israel. Israel. It's to believe that this is the time that God gives up on us. It's to believe that this is the time in which God turns back. God had provided for them in Egypt, and God had provided for them in the wilderness, but here they are on the edge of the promised land, on the edge of receiving God's kindness and receiving God's gift, and they think, this is when God throws in the towel. This is when God gives up on me, right? That's the same thing that we do. Man, we have seen God provide in our lives, haven't we? We've seen God come through in our lives. We've seen God take care of us. We've seen God bless us. We've, seen, we've went through hard stuff before and gotten to the other side and known that it was only the sustaining hand of God himself that had gotten us through. We know all of that. And here we are at the newest, latest moment. Maybe, maybe it's after Tuesday for you. You're on the edge of this election, and it feels like the whole world is coming down for you. And here, here it is. And God is saying, do you not remember no, we get to this place because our hearts are inclined to distrust the faithfulness of God. Our hearts are inclined to to throw in the towel and to believe that this is the sin that does us in, that this is this is the the hardship that that God won't overcome, that this is the difficulty that God won't use in our glory in, in our that here we are standing between a rock and a hard place between a desert on one side and giants on the other here we are standing with joblessness on one side and and no hope for a new job on the other side but god y'all he is a god of dependable character and surpassing greatness he is a god of dependable character and of surprising greatness let me ask you who gets proven the fool in this passage is it the ones who do the sensible thing? I mean, re- honestly, if we're all truthful about it, the sensible thing probably is to go back. You go, you're, you, you show up to the edge of the promised land, and you look, whoa, those guys are big. You know what? Die. You know, I, I mentioned my, my papa last week about the story, right? You know what he told me? He got in this fight one time on a beach in France or something. I don't really know. And he said he stood there and fought, and this guy almost killed him with a, with a switchblade knife. And he said, You know, Cody, and I've never forgotten this, he said, It's better to, die, to, to live as a coward than to die as a hero. And I thought, Oh, that's pretty good. Stay alive, noted. And so it's easy to go to the edge of the, of the promised land and say, You know what? I can die as a hero or I can live in the wilderness, right? I'll, let's, let's turn back. But who here is proven the fool? It's not not the ones that say, let's go on in, is it? It's not the ones that say, "Let's, let's press on in. No, because you know why? The character of God will never prove you a fool. There is nothing more dependable than banking your well-being on his promises. Church, you can count on his gifts well before you ever receive them. You can count on his gifts well before you ever receive them. That's what Caleb and Joshua were doing. They were banking on what God had said. God had promised them a gift. God had made a a covenant with them. And they had said, because God has said it, we can believe it and we can go. God has said some things to you and I. You know what God has said? God has said that all things in your life are gonna work together for good. That if you love God, that means all of your sin, all of your unfaithfulness, That means your worst day, your best day. That means your your health problems. That means your divorce. That that, that means that your, your, your unemployment. That means that when your business starts to tank. That means that when your credit card debt has gotten up way too high. All of those things are gonna work together for your good. And do you know what this means? This means you can go ahead and count on that. It doesn't feel like it, I know. It doesn't feel like it. It's okay. It's not going to feel like it, but you can be in the midst of a horrible situation and rejoice, rejoice over the promises of God because God's promises are dependable. God's character is true. You know what Paul told Timothy? Paul told Timothy that he already had his crown. His crown had already been made, secured by Jesus. Jesus. In other words, he says, you know what? I have fought the good fight. I have, I have ran the race. I've, I've fulfilled my ministry. I've done all of those things. So I'm just gonna go get this crown that's been waiting on me the whole time. You know what Jesus said about you? He said, I'm gonna go and prepare a place for you. There's gonna be many mentions there. If there, if there was not, I would tell you, but I'm going, I'm going, and I'm gonna prepare a place for you. And in that place is a crown for you. It's already there, church. It's already secured. You can count on it now. So you don't have to live to find gold here. You don't have to live at the right address here. You don't have to drive the right car here. You don't have to have the right job here. Your life doesn't have to be as satisfying. Your best life is not right now. Your best life is yet to come. It is the promise of the Almighty, and He is dependable in His character. See, in fact, in fact, when life is hard, when you get swept off your feet, when the, when the oxygen gets knocked out of your lungs, you've set yourself up to have your breath taken away time and again by his surprising greatness by the way that he intervenes, the way that he, he steps in in ways that you didn't say, and, and he overcomes the giants, and he overcomes the obstacles, and he overcomes the opposition, so that now, now you who thought you were falling apart, you who thought you were backing down, are able to press in and go and live and do, and not just survive, but live in joy. I wonder what you would do for God this morning if you were convinced you could trust his promises. I wonder if you'd surrender to the ministry. I wonder if you'd share the gospel with your kids. I wonder if you'd start an addiction recovery ministry. I wonder if you'd adopt a child or lead a connection group or give a young mother a new friend. You see, whatever apparent giant that's standing between you and God's gift, it's God's opportunity to surprise you again with his greatness. Will you trust him, church? Will you trust him? That brings us to the next point I want you to see about a convictional faith. A convictional faith depends on God's power. A convictional faith depends on God's power. There's only two ways that you live. There's only one of two ways that you live. You either live by conviction and faith or you live by fear and insecurity. That's the only two options. You either live on instinct or you live by conviction. Everybody faces the same obstacles and the same concerns and the same issues, but you have to decide whether you're going to live by the conviction that God is trustworthy or if you're going to live a safer, more convenient life, avoiding the things that scare you. I want you to notice something in verse 9. So in Hebrew, they they write in something and speak sometimes in something called parallelism, right? So what they'll do is they'll state something, and then they'll restate basically the exact same thing with a slightly different word. And the point of it is is to really drive home and to to, uh, illustrate exactly what they're talking about. Well, we have that here in verse 9. Listen to what it says. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And, see if this sounds familiar, do not fear fear the people of the land. So he says, do not rebel against the Lord. Let me restate this in a way that maybe you understand. Let me, let me say this one more time so that this really lands with you. Do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. And then he circles back and he says basically the same thing again. At the end of the verses their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So there's an equivalency that's being made. And it's an important one for us to make because I don't think we often make it. He's taken what it means to rebel and he's equating it to fear. That is, to live in fear is to live in rebellion. Whoa. Now look, I'm not saying every time you've ever been afraid of the dark that you're living in rebellion to the Lord. Like, I want you to understand what I'm saying. There, there is an instinct that, like if a bear gets after you and you're afraid, that's a healthy, non-sinful fear. You should get out of there. You know what I'm saying? By the, have you people seen this Facebook clip of this guy backing down from the mountain line in Utah? Uh, that's just extra. Y'all go look that up. This it's, it's nuts. this guy follows mountain line. I'm not going to spoil it. Just check. Trust me. Trust your pastor on this one. Might be a little salty on the language. I can't remember, but just trust me. But what is? There, but he's drawing an equivalency here between fear and rebellion. What, what's 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 that about? What, what's he doing? See. We don't often equate fear, but here he says it. And so how can it be fear? You can figure this out by the rest of what he says in verse 9. He says, don't be afraid of these people. Why? He says, he says, for they are bread for us. In other words, do you not know that the Lord consumes his enemy? The Lord has put them in front of us, so we are able to consume them. We are able to destroy them. We are able to overcome them. And then, And then he gives the most encouraging part of it all. The Lord consumes his enemy, and then what? the Lord is with us. He consumes his enemies and he's with us, so what do we have to fear? See, you know how it is that this is rebellion? It's because it's practical atheism. Living in fear is practical atheism. That means that you may profess with your lips that you believe that Jesus is the Lord. You may tell your kids that Jesus is the top priority in your house. You may tell all of your friends that they ought to go to church. You may do all of those things. But the truth is, when it boils down to it, do you actually live like you believe God is with you? Do you actually live like you believe that God is reigning on the throne? Do you actually live like you believe that you are answerable to God and that you are accountable to Him and that you are empowered by Him? do you live afraid of what your friends might say about you do you live afraid of your kids not having as much stuff as everybody else has do you live afraid of the results of elections do you live afraid of what the supreme court might turn into do you live afraid of what tomorrow may hold for your health do you live afraid Because if you live afraid, then what that shows is that you are trusting your instinct to turn and run from your enemies more than you trust the word of God that he will protect you and deliver you and bless you. You see, living in fear means that you overestimate your enemies and you underestimate your God. Living in fear means that you overestimate your enemies and you underestimate your God. The key to unlock much of the anxiety in your life is to stop overestimating your enemies and to start, stop underestimating your God. Man, there is a life-giving message for you in the words that Caleb speaks when he says that the Lord is with you. You see it? They're afraid to go and to take God's promises. Why? They're afraid to go because they can't do it. They know they can't do it. They aren't strong enough to do it. They're too small to do it. And these people are giants. They're, these, they're not warriors, they're slaves. They haven't been trained. Here's a trained military it's filled with the ancestry of the Nephilim. I mean, who's going to go and compete against that, man? Except, except they weren't going alone. They weren't going alone. Can I tell you the most life-giving, hopeful reality for you? that the answer to your peace is as simple as it is deep. God's will depends upon God, not upon you. God's will depends upon God and not upon you. There is not a decision that you can make that will thwart the will of God. There is not a sin that you can commit that will thwart the will of God. There is not a place that you can go. There is not a thing that you can do or not do. There is not a weakness that you have. There is not an insufficiency that's in you. There is nothing in you that can thwart the will of God. So go and take the promised land, man. Go and take the promised land. If God is calling you forward to a new chapter, you can stop overestimating your enemies because it doesn't rest on your shoulders or ride on your abilities. God is with you and God is able. In fact, God is with you in a way that Israel could have never even begun to understand. You Remember how we talked about how what set them apart is they had the tabernacle right there in the middle of the camp, right? And right there in the ta- is the tabernacle in the middle of the camp. And you have the cloud of glory hovering over the tabernacle. And it was the reminder that the very presence of God was pleased to dwell in the midst of his people. And they would take all of their tents, just oceans of tents, and they built them in a circle around the tabernacle. So that at the very center of the camp, there is the presence of God, the one who would provide for them the one that would protect them, the one who would deliver them. Do you know where he lives now? Do you know where the temple is today? It's in you. And it's in me. He dwells in us. Y'all, the Lord is with you. What are you waiting for? The Lord is with you. Man, start the ministry. The Lord is with you. You can have a child. I know it seems like it's impossible for you to handle, but you can handle it because the Lord is with you. You can get married and marriage is hard and marriage is scary, but you can make it because the Lord is with you. You can begin new ministries and teach and you can go on mission and you can live as a missionary. You can do all of these things because why? The Lord, the Lord is with you. He inhabits us as his very temple. Now, if you sense, if you sense that God is calling you away from a faith of convenience and into a faith of conviction, then it's important for you to know the fullness of the picture here. It's important for you to count the costs, because, okay... The way I envision this and the way I, I would hope that this would go, and if we were writing this out for a Hollywood script, man, this is, this is Rudy, right? At ha- this is a Lou Holtz uh, pep talk at halftime. And the expectation is that you're going to have this Lou Holtz pep talk, and, man, then you're going to go take down hell right after it, right? You're going to go run through a wall. And everybody's going to go, oh, well, yeah, Caleb, that's right. God's with us. Let's just go on in, then. Do you know what they do? They pick up rocks. I want you to think about this, y'all. We read the Bible without any emotion. But I want you to think about this. This is their friends. These are their neighbors. These are their tribes. These are their family. These are some of the very same men they just ate over a campfire with while they were out spying out the land. These men, these people pick up rocks and begin to throw them at their heads trying to kill them. Begin throwing them out their heads as though there was no care. You see, standing firm, living in conviction often means standing alone. If we are taking up our crosses to follow Jesus' church, we have to remember that the cross of Jesus was a lonely one. A lonely one. All of his disciples betrayed him. All of them fell away. All of them left. That if you're going to take up your cross and follow after Jesus, you're going to follow Jesus to a place of Loneliness. You're not living a majority life. It reminds us very much, remember we talked last week about the wide path, right? Well, does this not sound just like the narrow path? Listen to what Jesus says. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard. That is inconvenient. That that means not the path of least resistance, not the open door that God makes for us so that his will is obvious, okay? For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few, few. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to put to death the majority mentality that you live with. We live and die by elections in America, but we don't live that way as Christians. We don't live at the will of the people. We live at the will of God. We don't live and, and go and try to figure out what all of our friends think that we should do and then go do that. We ask God what He would have us to do, and we go and do that. Our mother may disagree with us. Our parents may disagree with us. Our brothers and sisters may disagree with us. Our neighbors may think that we're crazy. The other parents at the school, they may think that you're taking your kids off some deep end somewhere to be a holy roller. None of it matters. None of it matters because the way is narrow and hard that leads to life. And only a few will find it. Most people aren't there. It's a minority. John Knox once said this. He was a missionary in Europe. He said, a man with God is always in the majority. So you stand firm and you may stand alone, but you are never alone. Why? Because the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. And if the Lord is with you, he will provide for your kids. If the Lord is with you, he will provide for your marriage. If the Lord is with you, he will provide for your your joy. He will provide all that you need to do exactly what he has called for you to do because the Lord is with you. Brings us to our final point this morning, a convictional faith enters through God's kindness. A conviction of faith enters through God's kindness. So I, I love this picture. It says that God intervenes and God intervenes by shining his glory. So, so I, I imagine it like this. They're throwing the rocks and look, this is a this is pretty ma- messed up imagination, I guess. They're, thro- they're back and they're throwing those rocks and then all of a sudden, this blinding light shines and he's like, hit the deck and like Joshua and Caleb lay down and they throw the rocks and hit themselves in the head. Whatever it looks like, God intervened. God steps in and he shows them that, that what they're doing is wicked and sinful. And he begins to, to go and make a proposal to Moses. He says that he's going to strike his people with a plague and he's going to disinherit them. And he's going to take Moses and he's going to make Moses and Aaron into a great nation themselves. That he's going to do away with Israel and break his covenant with Israel and go and do something new and bring Moses and Aaron into the promised land. And y'all, if I'm Moses, I take that deal every day and twice on Sunday. You know what I'm saying? That's a good deal. But do you know what Moses does? Moses intercedes. Moses intercedes. That Moses steps between God and the people. And he begins to call on the character of God. Listen to what he says in verse 19. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to what? The greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. This is what Moses says. Moses appeals to the heart of God. And he says, have you not already forgiven them in Egypt for their unfaithfulness and their lack of belief? Did you not forgive them when they melted down the golden calf and bowed down to it did you not forgive them as they grumbled all the way across the wilderness oh god god they have only made it this far by your grace and they will only make it into the future by your grace but i know your heart and your heart is a heart of steadfast love and so lord i call on you to remember your people i call on you to forgive your people i call on you to give grace to your people because you are a god whose character has been proven his love was steadfast church his love was steadfast. That means it is more inclined to mercy than it is to wrath. It is proven that he was more inclined to remain filled with love and compassion than with vengeance and anger, just as either, just as either of those are. I don't know about y'all, but that's good news to me. That's good news that that's his heart. Because my heart is inclined just like theirs is. And God is painting a picture with, uh, with Moses here. He says in verse 20, He says, then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. Now he calls out and he says, oh God, pardon them, forgive them because of your steadfast love. And he says, I have heard you, Moses, I have heard you. And according to what you have said, I will pardon you. And so he lovingly pardons Israel of his sins and he provides the way through which their children, along with Joshua and Caleb, will enter into the promised land after all. Now, nobody out of that whole generation would enter into the promised land Except for Joshua and Caleb. But you know, they did not primarily, that's what we're seeing here, they did not primarily go into the promised land because of how strong their faith was. They primarily went into the promised land because of how kind their God was. It was all built on the kindness of the Lord. It was all built on what, do you see Jesus here? Do you see Jesus here? Jesus intercedes on our behalf. He stands between us and God. But Jesus doesn't ask for God's judgment to pass like Moses did. Jesus asks that God's judgment be poured upon himself rather than us. He mediates and intercedes, and then he atones. That is, Jesus says, Let the judgment they deserve fall upon me so that the kindness I deserve may fall upon them. You are never saved because your faith is so good, you are always saved because your God is so kind. So this morning, if you will repent of your sins and you will call on the name of the Lord, you know what what you will hear in response? I have pardoned you according to your word. This morning, will you come to Jesus? This morning, will you come to Jesus? Will you call on his name? Let me pray for us.